With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 517th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a wonderful British actress, writer, and director who at just 38 already has to her name an Academy Award, two BAFTA Awards, and SAG Critics' Choice, Writers Guild, LA Film Critics Association, and Spirit Awards, as well as three Primetime Emmy Award nominations. For years, she's been acting on TV shows like Call the Midwife and The Crown, and writing on shows like Killing Eve. But she first really shot to prominence two award seasons ago with her feature writing and directorial debut, Promising Young Woman. The story of a young woman haunted by and seeking to avenge the sexual assault that led to the suicide of her best friend years earlier. For it, she became the first female British filmmaker ever nominated for the Best Director Oscar. The film itself was also nominated for Best Picture. And she ultimately took home the Best Original Screenplay Oscar. This award season, she is generating Oscar buzz again for her sophomore feature, which she also wrote and directed, Saltburn a psychological thriller-slash-black-as-night comedy about one young man, an Oxford University student, who becomes obsessed with another, a wealthy classmate, and ingratiates himself into the classmate's life. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it is further evidence to support the argument of The Guardian that she, along with her friend and occasional collaborator Phoebe Waller-Bridge, as well as Michaela Cole and others, is part of, quote, a new wave in British entertainment that takes no prisoners. Close quote. Emerald Fennell. Over the course of a conversation in front of students at Chapman University, where I am a trustee professor, Fennell and I discussed the roots of her interest in dark material, how she broke into the business and, for years, juggled acting with writing and eventually directing, too, why she has so valued her collaborations with other women in the business, including Waller Bridge, Carrie Mulligan, who has appeared in both of her films, and Margot Robbie, who has produced both of her films, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Well, thank you again on behalf of all of us for being here right from the airport, pretty much. You really came for, came out for us tonight. Thank you for, for staying up and uh, doing this. And... Um, Welcome to Chapman. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I wish I went here. It's amazing. <laughs> well, 
to begin with, let's just go right back to the very beginning. Can you tell us where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Um, so I was born and raised in London, England. Um, and my mother was um, a photographer's agent. Um, and my father was a jewelry designer. Now, uh you have said, and I thought this is kind of interesting, that you did not sleep well as a child. Why was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that somebody might climb in through the window <laughs> um, and take my sister away. Um, I thought that there were people inside the walls. I just had, I think, what they kindly describe as a nervous disposition. <laughs> Um, and in Victorian times, I think I would have been institutionalized fairly, <laughs> fairly early. Um, but obviously I, an active imagination. I think so, an active imagination. Yep. And, and I just didn't sleep, don't sleep very well. Um, and so I read, so I read, so I read a lot of, and mostly horror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which amazing. we should know, you've written several children's horror books. That's not a genre that everyone gravitates towards. but No, indeed, <laughs> as I found out the hard way. <laughs> yeah, not a hugely popular well, genre but, but for it... children, it turns out. <laughs> Violent horror. Well, I met among authors, but that's uh, readers, maybe. Um, so you, there's, there's clearly from, a, from the start, active imagination, maybe some interest in, in the darker sides of life. But before writing even really was a primary pursuit, it seems, there, you were interested. What, what made you, I think around 15 I'd read, uh, gravitate towards acting? Well, I mean, anything for attention, <laughs> frankly. Um, but it was, I like making things. And at my school, we had a really inspiring drama teacher called Mr. Bryant. And he was incredibly serious he was incredibly serious about the work about plays about theater and he I think lots of people were a bit scared of him because he was you know he was he wouldn't pull his punches if he thought you weren't working hard enough or good but I found it so inspiring because he treated us like grown-ups you know and so a lot of the stuff that we were reading was yeah, much more. We were doing lots of kind of Greek tragedies. One of the first productions was like Antigone, um, <laughs> which, you know. Um, and so there was, and there was a big culture at the school of like writing things, directing things, making things. And so I, we, we had a thing where, you know, you all put on plays, you, you all kind of adapted and made your own plays. And I, <laughs> I directed and adapted uh, and starred, I'm sorry to say, in a 15 minute uh, adaptation of Glengarry Glen Ross, <laughs> all female. And let me tell you that the very complicated plot of Glengarry Glen Ross really was not made to be condensed into 15 minutes. <laughs> but um, but no, so it just felt, I think really I just wanted to do anything, anything to yeah. do with films, to do with theatre. So eventually you go off to Oxford. What were, what were you planning to do with your life at the beginning. Obviously, things change in college. We're all finding that uh, here, I'm sure. But for you, 
Did you have it in mind what you wanted to do? I think yes, in that weird sort of I think I think probably like lots of people here if you want to do this job or work in this industry it tends to be quite a kind of singular pursuit and it and I think really for me the first time I was really even aware of television of films I knew I wanted to have something to do with it so just the night before I started filming Promising a Woman my mum sent me a video that she'd found of me when I was about seven and she asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And we didn't have a video camera, so I don't even know where this video <laughs> was from. It's quite spooky. And I said, um, I want to be an actress <laughs> and live in America and write stories about murder. That all came true. Yeah. Now, at Oxford, though, you were primarily acting can you connect or was maybe other things well but how does how while at oxford do you come to the attention of somebody who i'll ask you to tell people who this is but lindy king yeah so lindy king is so lindy king is one of the best agents in london so i mean i was as surprised as anyone to be honest um she they agents often come to oxford and cambridge because they've got quite a strong kind of theatrical tradition so um yeah, and so she she came and and she very kindly signed me up. And I think, but honestly, I I again in England we don't we were talking about a little bit about this backstage. It's increasingly the case that there are like more amazing kind of film schools coming up and some really incredible places. But really, the the only thing that I knew of was drama school, you know, and the theatre. That's where the culture kind of still. That's where the root of the culture in, in in England so I guess I just didn't know it was possible honestly to be a director like I knew I could write I, I I loved writing I left university and immediately started writing screenplays and then couldn't get any of those off the ground and so started writing books and but I just you know I, I suppose it sounds so naive I was speaking to Marielle Heller, who I met recently, who's just the coolest person ever in the world, in the world, and the most talented. And she said, because she's an actress as well, started as an actress, she said she she wondered if it was also partly because it seemed to be the most visible role for women when we were growing up. So, so it seemed like the, yeah, the kind of job that was possible to do, even though it's unbelievably difficult also. And um, But yeah. So what brought you to Lindy King's attention? You were doing this production at... I was doing production of a play called Rabbit by a girl called Nina Rain. And it was a really... She was really amazing, Nina, because she was like... It was at the Royal Court Theatre. And she was like 24 or 25. And I remember meeting her and being like, whoa, you can just like... You can just write a play as a young woman and just put you know and have it in a theater in london it just felt so inspiring and i played as i always do you know some posh monster <laughs> don't really have much range in life or as an actress <laughs> well that having an agent leads to these first roles i know there's um small role in a film mr nice there's a First role in TV, wife of, of uh, Matthew McFadden, who we now know, uh, people know for a lot of things, but most recently, Succession, this was in Any Human Heart. Um, and then you and some, several other young um, up-and-coming British actresses were a part, small parts, but in 
a movie from Rodrigo Garcia in 2011 called Albert Knobs. And this is significant for a number of reasons. I mean, Glenn Close, very strong performance, nominated for an Oscar, Janet McTeer. But in the grand scheme of things, what one of the things that's going to be remembered for is the meeting of, I think, you and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So tell us what was going on at that point. Uh, you know, what were you guys doing there that, that led you to connect there, which is going to come back around in a little bit? Um, well, so we were both playing what we like to call corner tits, which <laughs> were the parts me and Phoebe were, and most of us were, were up for at the time, which was sort of, well, what it says on the tin, sort of tits in the corner. <laughs> you might, if you were lucky, have a line. I think Phoebe recently described this as prestige corner tits, <laughs> it being Oscar nominated and, right. and a very beautiful film. Right. But but so we so we didn't have, you know, we kind of had these amazing, it was Victorian. We had to, you know, sort of often kind of stand in the corner looking um, quizzical sometimes or, you know, occasionally jolly. But um, uh, we had to be in Dublin for a long time. We'd never met. And so we just started talking and I just completely fell in love with her as everyone who's ever met her does because she's not like anyone in the entire world she just isn't and I was I think I loved her so much immediately not just because she was so funny and clever and brilliant but she was doing something called dry write which was this amazing kind of theatrical they were like theatrical events which would have lots of different writers writing to a brief and then the audience would like vote on it so it's things like you know one was called guilty and you, and you know playwrights would write a short kind of 10 minute play and then the audience would decide if the character in it was guilty or not guilty. you know just really fun and or like one of them i think was called like too far question mark where people kind of really pushed the boundaries to see when people went and then you put your hand up when you thought it was too far i think i, I don't want to get it wrong because i because but but so she was doing that and I was writing I think I just published maybe my first book and so I think we connected as people who wanted to yeah wanted to make our own things really desperately now these smaller parts in films that people saw but it, you know these are early days so next year of that after that 2012 was a project with a lot of young up-and-coming actresses again Joe Wright's movie version of Anna Karenina then the, I guess what I would imagine you look back at as a, a big break of sorts would be Call Me Midwife. Mm. And uh, call the, excuse me, Call the Midwife, which is, uh, this just so people know, was up and running, adapted from a memoir of a nurse who I think passed away just before the show started, right? And But essentially, uh, nurse midwives working in the East End of London in the late 50s and 60s this show was up and running and was like the top show, right, in the UK at the time you joined it in, I don't know which season, maybe three? Yeah, season three. And um, so I just, I guess I wonder there, you're playing this nurse, Patsy Mount, who, um, you know, again, you're, but you're, she developed a following, but you're joining a, um, a, a thing that's kind of working and a lot of other young, young actresses. Was that daunting, exciting to be joining a hit that's already, you know, up and running? I think, well, I was, I was lucky in that I'd, I'd come on an, a, a, as a guest role in an episode and then they asked me to come back um, as a regular for three. So, I, so luckily I kind of, it, it happened incrementally, so it was less intimidating. But um, the girls, 
the women of Call the Bidwife still, you know, among some of my best friends, they were so welcoming and so kind. And it's it remains one of the best experiences of my life and the most formative because it's a show run almost entirely by women, starring women. Um, it's the most collaborative, most beautiful show. It taught me a lot about the way we, you know, the way that we frame women's stories. It was often framed as a very like cozy, kind of cozy show when it was actually really brutal a lot of the time. Very kind of, you know, difficult subject matters and very, it was very kind of honest in lots of ways. And, and I'd find when I was in it, you know, men would often say, oh, I don't watch Call the Midwife, you know, because of, and I was like, what, what, because of what? And they'd say, oh, you know, the blood and the, and I was like, but you watch wars. Do you watch wars? Do you like watching wars? Do you like watching people get stabbed? And they'd be like, oh, well, uh, I suppose, uh, I suppose so. And I'd be like, yeah, 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 exactly. I see. Cool. Cool. Um, but it's so it was a really interesting experience to kind of be on this show that people kind of I don't know who people who didn't watch it thought was kind of sweet and it really wasn't it was it was really powerful and um but it also taught me I think everything I need everything that I've like brought with me to my life as a director which is um we had different director and a different DP every every block which is every two episodes which I don't need to explain to you guys because you already know more than I do about how everything works in this industry <laughs> just from looking at your campus but this is all stuff that I learned along the way but you know so it was I, I you could see then every day what worked what didn't work how actors like to be spoken to how they don't you know what they don't like they um you know the things that are slow things that save time all that all the kind of like the boring meat and potatoes of making something getting stuff actually done because you know it's all very well to have like beautiful ideas and but actually you gotta make your days and so I just I just thought that was one of the things that was so valuable to me because what I learned really early on is that if you're crew and your cast really trust each other and you really work together properly you're not just islands kind of working in you know working in isolation you're all together you can shoot 10 pages of incredibly complicated medical dialogue in 20 minutes <laughs> with a clever oneer and every actor blocking themselves to make sure everyone can be seen you can do it can be done and so it meant that when I walked on set for Promising a Woman even though it was an impossible you know an impossible kind of in impossibly short amount of time um i knew we could do it in so, an emergency totally well uh what i wondered because you bring up promising young woman i i believe you started pitching it around 2017 which would be towards the end of the call the midwife run right you're there 2013 to 2017, I think. God, I and mean. So, well, just only I, 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 I asked because I'm trying to pinpoint if, and maybe if, I don't know if you've pinpointed when the moment happened that you're, you arrived at the feeling, I want to write something feature length myself. And also I wonder as you're first immediate, uh, uh, initially pitching that around your idea, was it always, I also want to direct this? Because I'm trying to see if there had been an earlier 
uh, indication that you wanted to direct as well. So I think, well, it wasn't the first feature script I'd written. So I'd written lots, like I think, like everyone here, I'm sure, you know, and and lots have been in development and gone nowhere, died a death, as they often do. I'd sold a couple of shows in America, um, a couple of pilots, one drama, one comedy, um, which again, then just didn't, um, didn't go in the end. Um, and, um, my, my lot, the last book that I wrote, which was called Monsters, which was an adult book, um, uh, an amazing showrunner called Jessica Knappett read it and asked me to, uh, write on the fourth series of her show Drifters. And so by the time I, by the time I was pitching Promising All Woman, well, firstly, I'd, I'd shot a short film called Careful How You Go. And that had been at Sundance um, because I knew I wanted to direct and I needed something that would show kind of tonally the sort of things I wanted to make. So it's that, it's that funny thing. It often looks like you've come out of nowhere because of course all of those projects that nearly happened didn't happen um you know for example one of the tv the tv shows that fox had bought i'd met um lucky chap for it and i'd loved them this is margot robbie's production company yeah who made both my films and and i just and i loved them and um and so again it was kind of all of those things all of those meetings that when you're, you know, when you're starting out, feel often so, you know, like you're just kind of knocking the door and it, and it feels like nobody's ever going to listen or let you in. And and then it just, yeah, it just takes time, all those meetings. Well, you say carefully how you go, this, this short that goes Sundance, that that was indicative of what you were wanting to do. How would you describe what that was? Um... It's a dark comedy about recreational sadists. Well, there you go. Okay. You, 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 your, that became your your calling card, I guess. Kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, it was really about the way that women, and it certainly, you know, was, was you know, a kind of endless preoccupation of how women manifest rage and frustration and, and grief. And so um, it was a little girl getting... Um, getting into a man's car and pretending he'd kidnapped kidnapped her, <laughs> and then, and then it was Phoebe Waller-Bridge calling, c- calling up the numbers on missing posters and pretending to be the children. <laughs> and then it was Linda Bassett, who's in Call the Midwife, who's one of Britain's greatest actresses. Who's just she's incredible, and she played a woman who. She played a woman in a, in a, in the last vignette, which was something that happened to me in real life. Which was um, that what happened in my real life, and then I made it into the the end of this film was um, a woman stopped me on the street when I was fifteen, and she was like a really nice middle aged woman. She stopped me on the street and said, "I'm so sorry, I didn't know whether to stop you, but you're going to die of stomach cancer when you're thirty. What? Genius. Oh my god. Genius. Oh my god. And I just looked at her and she looked so normal and I just thought that's just that's just a man going into a pub picking a fight. Yeah. We see that all the time, but that's a hit and run. Yeah. And it's even better than a hit and run because I'm going to think about it every time I get a stomach ache. <laughs> because I'm a woman, that's going to happen about once a month. Oh my god. So, yeah. Hey, wow. So we're going to come back obviously in a moment to what happens with the, with the promising young woman pitch but i think in the meantime while 
that was gestating, you and Phoebe have a conversation about Killing Eve, which she uh, had made the first season. It was extremely well-received. And then she decides she doesn't want to continue writing, being the head writer in subsequent seasons. And I guess it was established from the outset that each subsequent season would have a different female head writer, right? Yeah, so it kind of, again, it sort of... Um what what had happened? What had actually happened was Phoebe had always been slated to go on to write Fleabag too. So she was never gonna. She was only ever gonna write the first season of Killing Eve. And so I was in the writers' room for season two, um, before it came out. Before Killing Eve came out, and at the time, the producers I remember were all a bit like, "Well, you know, hopefully a few people will watch it. You know, it is quite <laughs> an unusual thing. So we're not. You know, we we, we, we you know we hope people like it." And we were like, we think they will. It's very good. <laughs> and so we were in the room and then it came out, of course, and like, holy shit. Yes. It's the biggest thing ever and it is the best thing ever. And, and, um, uh, and yeah, but it was kind of, again, it was a sort of unusual thing because we didn't really have rooms in the traditional sense in England. Um, and the idea had been that, you know, lo- that, that we would all kind of write our own episodes and there wouldn't be necessarily that person to, with an overview and I think pretty swiftly that seemed like that wasn't going to be able to be possible and so I and I was amazingly promoted and um but about two weeks before we started shooting so it was pretty or maybe maybe a bit more maybe a month but it was it was pretty hairy and just for the record so you end up writing or co-writing six of the eight episodes of that second season um one of which gets your uh, writing Emmy nomination, but I just think, and also, so with the TV series that you're now tasked with overseeing for the first time, did you, do you basically, is that exciting, intimidating, especially with the short amount of time you had to prep? Like, are you going in there and outlining from the beginning the fact that, you know, spoiler alert, there's going to be almost like a uh, mirror ending of the second season to the way the first season ended, which just like, how how does it how did it work for you in terms of just mapping out such a a sprawling thing? Well, I mean, I think that that was the thing about the process was as well. Our, our writing time was truncated because it was pushed back forward. I never know about which way is which. It came they they wanted it to come out sooner. Right. <laughs> two months by the to the tune of two months, which obviously when you're in production is so it was. I think, but I, but I, we definitely knew the kind of broad strokes that we wanted and that we wanted it to be about, yeah, about the love affair between these two women, the, the kind of, the impossible pull between them and what that does, you know, the thing, the kind of central thing for me for that season was always, you know, who's killing Eve? And the answer is, is Eve, really. It's her getting away from herself, you know, and kind of disentangling herself from her old life, uh, you know. Um, but it was amazing. It was amazing. It was terrifying. And I was working. I got married in the middle of it, and I don't remember getting married because I was not. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, are we going to? I was getting emails as my dad was walking me. To, I was like, let me just, I'm just going to. And dad was like, come on, come on, mate. Come on, mate. <laughs> But I was, yeah, I was kind of working 20, 21 hours a day sometimes um, because I wanted it, 
I wanted it to be good and I wanted Phoebe to be proud and yeah, it was That's amazing. Great. Now, was there, it can't have been overlapping, but on, on paper, it looks like overlapping with that, you're still acting. And in fact, at that point, getting your highest profile role, I think to date as the woman who becomes the queen, eventually Camilla Parker Bowles uh, on the crown. Like this is a huge show with the best, uh, so many of the best actors in the business. And I just wonder like, where does that, how did it come about and where did that fit into all of this? God, I know. I think it was, it went, this is how it went. It went Killing Eve, shooting Killing Eve, prepping on getting, getting, uh, auditioning for the crown, getting the part in the crown, being in the crown while we're in po on post on Killing Eve and then prep on Promising a Woman, shooting Promising a Woman, quickly having a baby, second second season of, well, fourth season, but my second yeah. season of The Crown, crown. then COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, with uh, The Crown, meanwhile, that's another Emmy nomination for this time for <laughs> acting, um, which, again, not too many people, like, I guess... Phoebe, but other than that, uh, can't think of too many people who are getting recognized for writing and acting within a year or two span. It's pretty unbelievable. But um, the other thing, which you said is simultaneously happening with all of this, is the evolution of Promising a Woman, which while, so while you're pitching this, first of all, what, can you share what was the pitch? And I imagine primarily to men, right? You're primarily pitching to, I think you've said primarily to men, um, did they get it? I mean, I think they really got it. They yeah. got it too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd pitch the cold open. So I'd just do the cold open, the Cassie being drunk in a club and, you know, and I'd, and I'd pitch it as it is in the film, which is, you know, the, it seems like the story is it's going to be about an awful thing that happens to a drunk girl. And then, you know, and then the pitch ended with me saying, and she sits up and she's not drunk. <laughs> and the the men would go, holy shit. And I was like, I know. And they were like, so she's a psycho. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I was like, no, no, she's fine. No, she's she's the one who's actually fine. And, he's, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, exactly. Got it, got it, got it. So it was... But, you know, but the thing that was the thing about about it was that I didn't want to make I wanted to make something that had this that was accessible, that meant we could all have a conversation that is, is about forgiveness or at least the possibility of forgiveness that is about how we move forward when something that when I was growing up was just completely and utterly part of the culture. So. So I, you know. The idea was always that it could be something that everyone could see and understand and talk about. Um, was the fact that, was the, around 2017, which is, again, I believe when you started pitching this, that's when the um, New Yorker and New York Times stuff about Harvey Weinstein came mm -hmm. out and it started the whole Me Too movement. Did that have anything to do with your doing this? I mean, it might have had some... It might have had some bearing on it getting funded and made, but certainly it 
it didn't have a bearing on the writing. I started writing it a few years before. And also the thing that I was sort of said and feel very much about Me Too is it wasn't news to women. It was only news to men. Nobody, none of us were shocked by any of the stories. It was a revelation for the people who'd never been on the receiving end of that kind of attention. Um, and so it's been a part of, you know, every woman I know's life. So the fact that this first feature movie ends up with Margot Robbie's production company being the one that makes it, was it partly because, I mean, I know that her partners are, some of her partners in that company are men, including her husband, but was it a certain understanding that she had of what you were trying to do that maybe others did not? Absolutely. And also, um, they're just really good. That's the thing about Lucky Chap and about Margot and Josie. They're just really good. There's a reason that they're like making some of the, you know, there's a reason they made a billion and a half dollars in the box office with Barbie. And going back to I, Tanya. Yeah. A lot of because they're really good. Yeah. And I think, and Josie, who is her, you know, who's, who's my kind of onset producer on both this and Saltburn, he, you know, he and Tom, who run the company with Margot, they grew up on the floor. So they were thirds and seconds, then firsts. So they have practical experience and it, it makes such a difference, such a difference. And, you know, our amazing first AD on Saltburn had to leave um, one morning. There was a family emergency and he had to go. Um, and we were in the middle of nowhere in Northamptonshire shooting. And um, and Josie, who's, you know, quite a fairly big cheese these days, just put her the earpiece and firsted and didn't make a fuss, just did it. And, I was, and that's why they're so good. And it's the same with Margot. She just works hard. She knows. She's, she knows everything. So a question about Margot. When you have a production company and you find a great piece of material like this, was there ever any discussion that she might play Cassie? Well, there wasn't actually, partly because she was, she was, as they say, booked and busy for, uh, for I think like three years. But also I, I think I'd, I'd wanted somebody who maybe hadn't been in any action movies or sort of genre movies before. I was sort of, I, and so, um, Carrie was the person that I'd always imagined for Cassie because, you know, she's so, she's, she's such a kind of still point in quite a high kind of, I don't know, quite a heightened world maybe. Had you ever met Carrie before? Well, I thought no. We both thought we'd never met. And then somebody halfway through filming Promising a Woman said, you guys have been in something together. You're on IMDb as been, having been in something together. And we were like, what do you mean? And me and Carrie were in an episode of Trial and Retribution. That's like X. your Law and Order kind of. And Indeed it is. Colon, Sins of the Father. <laughs> and it was absolutely brilliant. And it was me, Carrie, your Michael Fassbender. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, it was like like stacked. Um, I mean, not with me, obviously, but Carrie and Mike Fassbender. And so she, so we had been in a scene together, and I had played guess what, bitchy posh friend. Let me. Uh, she forgive me. For oh no! No. We're gonna bring the lights down. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
us. Why do you want to go home? Why can't we do this? Why can't we ruin things? First acting credit for Emerald Fennell. Congratulations. Thank you. Now that was how many? Let's do the math. So Promising Young Woman came out in 2020. This was in 2007. Let's see. Yeah, 2007. So 13 years years later, it comes back around. I mean, but no, yeah, so that we couldn't, we didn't remember, but that was our first job together. (laughs) So, you know, amazing. Here's something Carrie said. Um, about being approached by you to do Promising Young Woman. Quote, I'd been exclusively playing mums for a bit. I had a teenage son in wildlife, and then I had children in Mudbound, and I had been performing this Dennis Kelly monologue, Girls and Boys at the Royal Court in London and on Broadway, in which I had two children. And then suddenly I was a bit like, can you still buy me as a pre-kids? It wasn't anything I'd massively articulated, but I was like, okay, I'm going to be in that zone again, close quote. Uh, There are... uh, there are lots of things about it that I felt like I have no idea how to do this. That's the close quote. Um, so you wanted, tell me what made, what made you think of Carrie to play this person? Did it have anything to do with the role she had previously played? Um, I think, well, I mean, as you saw there. <laughs> a revelation. She's a revelation. I mean, I think she's the best actress in the world. I really do. And that's not just me being effusive. I think it's sort of factually correct. Um, I thought she was incredible in shame, really amazing in shame. The less well-known thing that she and Michael Fassbender were in together. Um, And I just, I just had a sense, she's, the thing about Carrie is she's the nicest person in the world. She's truly a wonderful person. But she has this thing that I think some women have that maybe Rosamund Pike has too, which is there's a kind of self-contained feeling that is kind of, unfuckable with (laughs) and that's the thing about Carrie she's got this power and it's really hard to articulate but Cassie needed this kind of silent she needed to be real completely completely real and we needed to feel like her motivations were not only kind of understandable but worthy you know, and, and, you know, she's, she's a, yeah, it, it, it just needed somebody who wasn't going to play the genre, who wasn't going to play the tone, who wasn't going to be giving a, a performance that was like arch, just needed somebody real. And she's just so unbelievably good at being real. And you had guided everybody else, including her, about the vibe of this is that uh, I mean, you might read a logline and think one thing, but visually, 
Um, I mean, can you talk about, and I don't know if this is something with every movie, but for this one, you've said you gave people a mood book, a playlist, things that maybe helped them to understand that you were going to try to uh, subvert the assumptions they might have about the genre, right? Yeah, I think, I think it felt like on paper it could be a very dour, grey sort of serious effect I'm not saying that it's not serious but but that it would look like the kind of film that would be about this sort of subject matter I suppose and I think that what I wanted was it to feel sort of ultra 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 feminine like those sort of revenge movies do those sort of like candy pop kind of films and so that it was only kind of it's only later on that you realize you're kind of the thing that you're you're actually you're in there for is going to be much more confronting and difficult than the thing it's you know pretending to be um and i yeah i kind of always likened it to like going on the best date in the world <laughs> like the best date in the world and then going back to someone's apartment and then suddenly realizing the door's locked and you can't get out that's the kind of feeling of the movie really and i like doing that in general you know i like playing with genre we all of us have such a complicated relationship with films, television, actors, already, songs, all of it. We, we can't expect films to exist in isolation. They don't live outside the culture. Well, and so, to that point, though, I think one of the ways you kind of subtly but really thoughtfully manipulated, if not in a bad way, but the audience, how did you decide who to cast as the guys who were doing very bad things in Promising Young Woman? Well, I just cast the men that I would conceivably go home with. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> the ones that you like, the ones that you're friends with, the ones that are nice, the ones that are handsome, the ones that seem like they wouldn't do that sort of stuff, the ones that we all like already. Um, Max because, Greenfield, Michael Sarah, Adam Brody, Bo Burnham. Oh, not Michael Sarah. I wish. Oh, me, what did Sarah. I say? I Christopher yeah. Mintzplatz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chris, that's what I meant. Yeah, super bad confusion. Yeah. <laughs> it's important that he's in all of my films. Yes, <laughs> I love him. Uh, yeah, and Bo. You know, it's just it was. It's about. It's. It doesn't hit if it's just skeezy guys that we don't like. It's not. That's not the experience. The experience is the people that you really like. It's your friends. It's the people at work, you know, it's, it's the, well, he's never been like that with me. It's those people, you know, that's the, that was the important thing. And, and with Bo, the, the central romantic comedy, the love story at the center of that in the movie is the most important part of the movie because, you know, it's what she has to sacrifice. Um, and so Bo needed to be, that that character needed to be completely irresistible. And he was just, yeah, he came. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Amen and him and Carrie were just perfect together. One last promising young woman thing is that you make your movie that you've poured your heart and soul, your first feature film, goes out and... Pretty soon thereafter, the whole world shuts down. This was going right into the pandemic. Um, so at the same time that that's happening, you uh, you wake up on the morning of the Oscar nominations. You and Chloe Zhao are both nominated for Best Director. The first time there were two women ever nominated for that award in the same year. And screenplay, uh, original screenplay. Uh, just all of this good news coming at that moment in time must have been a little... And you're quite pregnant at that time, right? No, no. Or was that after? No, I gave birth three weeks after principal photography wrapped on. So you had been woman. pregnant while... And then I, quite confusingly for the world, less so for me, but, but was then... But then was also pregnant when I received the, the, Oscar, the Oscar for with another child. <laughs> and then, of course, was in Barbie... With a fake pregnant belly. So I am now, I guess, just pregnant all the time. <laughs> I suppose. <Well. laughs> That's fine. Um, so, yeah. So, so sorry. What was the question? Well, just about, <laughs> you know, the probably uh, muddle of emotions. But oh. the Oscars in particular. Yeah. Where at a train station, the only time the Oscars have or ever probably will be held in a, in a small train station with just the nominees, presenters, and their significant others due to social distancing, you win an Oscar. Well, it was, that for me was wonderful because the idea of getting up and being at the Oscars as it is normally with 2,000 people would have completely terrified me. And the thing about the Oscars in 2020 was that it was... It was just you, it was just nominees and their dates. And so it was really wonderful because you get, you got to finally meet all the people that you'd been talking to on Zoom for months and all the people that you really admired. And all of us were in this strange thing together and everyone was so supportive. It didn't feel like I imagine it feels or imagine it would have felt like it, it was so supportive. We all like wished each other so well. Um, that it was really an amazing, amazing thing. I've, I'm really grateful, actually, that it was the way it was. Because also the the, the 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 award that I won was the first one of the night, which I didn't realise until I sat down. And they'd said, we got an email beforehand. Bit of behind-the-scenes admin. Yeah. Love the admin. <laughs> I have an Oscars pen, clicky pen. <laughs> I, every time I use it, I'm like, this is... <laughs> amazing <laughs> um but it, they said you know because steven soderbergh did directed it and they said it's not going to be the oscars as we know it you're not going to do an oscar speech you're going to do a two-minute story and i was like "Ooh, i don't know what 
I don't know what that's, what do they mean? But I was like, but it doesn't matter because I won't win one. And even if I do, I'll, I'll get the vibe from everyone else. And then I'll just, if, if that happens. And then, and then of course, the, the thing that happens is I sit down and then I immediately stand up again. And I'm walking to the podium thinking a two minute story. I don't know any stories. <laughs> I don't know any words. I don't know my name. So um, it was just, it was just the most, it was the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened in my life. I just can't describe, I just can't, I still can't believe it. Can't believe it. It's awesome. Well, I, uh, I was at something last week with Carrie and she said she was very jokingly jealous because you go home with an Oscar. So she felt, and she, she did not win that night. So she stole a lamp shade from the train station Oscars and that was her she would give it to her children and whatever you know she sent me um a video of her holding the lamp the Oscars (laughs) lamp in the airport giving her acceptance speech yes right with the lamp (laughs) and it's the best thing in the world she's gonna win so many oh yeah she's gonna win a thousand awards for a thousand things could be just a few months away I mean yeah she's the greatest this brings us to 2023, but that does not immediately mean Saltburn. We have one last thing to talk about before oh. Saltburn, which is Barbie, which yes. you, uh, again, back with Margo. And Greta Gerwig, another who seems like the American, one of your long lost like sisters, your American sister. But just tell us, um, you know, how your involvement with that one came <laughs> about and how, you know, Midge, what, how, do they, how do you get p- pitched to be Midge? I mean, also, it feels like cheating to take any credit for Barbie because I'm literally in it for like 30 seconds. Uh, But I will because it's my favorite film I've ever seen in my entire life. So I've been obsessed with it conceptually for years because I knew, obviously, that Greta and Noah were writing it for Lucky Chap because I spent uh, the whole time, every time I spoke to Josie, like, Josie, 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 have you seen the script yet? What is it? What is it? What is it? Because I love Barbie so much. And they never showed it to me because it was under lock and key. And then I got an amazing text from Margot saying, Greta is asking if you would ever consider to play Midge the pregnant Barbie in Barbie because uh, Midge has been pregnant for 50 years and it seems like you have to. (laughs) I was like, yeah, you're telling me. So... um, so I just said, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times. Yes. I'll do anything. I'll wave in the background. And indeed, that is what I did. <laughs> and gratefully. And yeah, it was just the best thing in the world. It was, it's the most beautifully crafted film. The production design, the costumes, like walking into Barbie land was the most inspiring thing I've ever felt in my, in my life, because it was the first time that I've seen the stuff that I cared about as a kid given that amount of thought and care and budget because I think we take for granted that the sort of things that you know that you know not exclusively but are more kind of thought of as children for like little boys have been made into a thousand billion dollar movies but this year what do we have Super Mario Brothers Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yeah uh we could keep going but yeah you did get Barbie but walking on and seeing all the stuff that you care about, you know, the stuff that really made your heart beat faster as a kid. It was like, it's my Star Wars. Nice. Well, (laughs) 
So this brings us to Saltburn. I would imagine that following, deciding how you're going to follow a first film that's so well-received that the Oscar, all of that might be a little daunting. How far back did the, what, how far back did you first have the uh, spark of the idea for what became Saltburn? And, and were you a bit conscious of the fact that there's, you know, sophomore film can be, can be tricky? I think, um, well, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think it really helps that the way that I work is it's a very long process. So Saltburn was kind of always going to be the next thing. Or at least it became apparent quite quickly that, that that it was going to be the next thing. And I don't tell anyone what I'm working on. I just deliver the script to my agents and managers once it's finished. And they don't know what it is. They don't know the title of it. They don't know anything. And I could, and that just means I can just say, look, this is what I'd like to make. If you like it, terrific. You think somebody wants to make it, great. If not, you know, I can write something else. Because this is, you know, the this is the, it won't be the final thing, of course, but this is what I want to make and it means that for me the process can it's just you know it it can be I'm just worried about whether I would want to watch it whether I would love it whether I would think it was funny or sexy you know that's the that's my that's the thing that has to be the kind of start when I when I'm writing something is it is personal and there are things in this film, certainly, and in Promising Woman, that you kind of don't really want to discuss, maybe necessarily with other people, until you've thought it out yourself. So, so no, it was, and I guess, I, I suppose the sophomore thing, I've been waiting my whole life to do this. It's been my, it's been my dream for so long. So to be able to then make something else, to be able to make another film the way I wanted to make it was like the greatest, the greatest gift. So, um, you know, obviously there are moments where it's like terrifying or difficult or grueling, whatever, but you know, it's a joy. And was it immediately clear, you know, whatever you did next, you wanted to, you and, and lucky chap, Margot's company are going to reunite or yeah, you, yeah, it was. Yeah, definitely. So, you call this a vampire film, um, and I will ask you to talk about that. But, I mean, you also always, as we've seen now twice, cast just outside-the-box great actors. And in this case, we've got Barry Keoghan, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, yes, uh, coming off of um, Banshees of Inner Sharon. You've got Jacob Elordi, who's... Now, now, uh, all over the place. Um, <laughs> Richard E. Grant and Rosamund Pike, who are hilarious. And you've got back, albeit briefly, Carrie Mulligan, who now for the third, at least the second time, maybe the third, I don't know how that, that Law & Order uh, type show, what the, who killed her, but somebody, you've killed her now uh, twice at least, right? I didn't kill her in Trial and Retribution. You did not. I okay. was just a red herring. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to say. Uh, yes, no, I'll kill her for the rest of my days. The rest of your days. <laughs> um, so why this story? Why set it in 2006? Is there a reason? Is that like particular time of, I'm, I'm trying to do the math when uh, 
you might have been in school yourself. Like, what's the, why, why was that? I think the main thing is, is I wanted to make a gothic movie, like an old-fashioned gothic movie. British country house gothic movie in the kind of tradition of Brideshead Revisited and the go-between and atonement, um, um, the remains of the day. And so all of those, the gothic narrative kind of is constructed very similarly for almost every novel and film, which is that somebody looks back over a time in their life that, you know, that, that changed them completely. Um, and, you know, so it's like in Rebecca last night, I dreamt I went to Manly again, or, you know, so it always needed to be set in the, in the recent past. We need to, we needed to understand that whatever had happened that summer had just like frozen Oliver's life completely. Um, and 15 years ago felt like, which, cause it was exactly, it was too, it's set mostly in the summer of 2007 and, um, which made it exactly 15 years before we were filming it, which meant everything was really uncool because 15 years ago, wherever you are in time is terrible <laughs> and it's incredibly humanizing you know, when you're dealing with very, very beautiful people in very timeless world, you, you know, you run the risk if you set it now of kind of everyone just looking like they're in a kind of fashion shoot. But if you go, if, even if you edge like earlier, even if you're looking like 2002 or three, it's already kind of back. In fact, you know, so it's that thing of they suddenly become people and sort of fallible people with their shit hair and their bad fake tans and their awful tattoos and their live strong bracelets, you know, suddenly they're, they're humans in this inhuman place. Why did you shoot it or present it in Academy ratio, which is basically the kind of more box like format? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, of course. Um, it's like the first use, you know, the first, com one of the first conversations me and Linus had obviously is that is, is how do we shoot it? Um, and it's funny because honestly, 133 is such a great way to shoot, especially if you like formal framing, you know, as I do and, and Linus doesn't. And, and if you want to make a film that's a bit more expressionistic, you know, it, it, a lot of our references for this film were paintings and they, they were, they weren't landscapes, they were portraits you know, the, the house is extremely square, tall. Uh, Jacob and Archie are both six foot five, which makes shooting two shots in an anamorphic lens impossible, literally impossible. And it's, it's, and it's funny. It just, it just felt, it was one of those things where we, we went and we, we, when we wreckied the house, we took loads of pictures and all sorts of different, in all the different ratios, but it just was the one we kept coming back to. It just, it fit the house perfectly and it fit the sense of peeping into this doll's house. It fit the maze. It felt, it fit, it, it, and, and if, and I like really, really close close-ups and one through three is kind of the best for close-ups because you're not getting, you're not cutting people's faces and you're not seeing any background. Um, so I love, I mean, I love it. And I think it's just the thing of it, it's what does the film want yeah. and need? Um, yeah. Was there a scene that was the most fun to write for you? There's a lot of scenes. There are audible reactions to throughout this movie. And I wonder for you, is that, was there one that for you even? I mean, Elspeth was very fun to write. Yes, yes. I mean, her, just, just anything. I mean, I love the scene between her and Oliver when she's talking about, you know, she's just talking about her past and, and her... Um, 
and her daughter in such a kind of unbelievably cruel way. But of course, the crueler she is, the more you just want her to be cruel to you. (laughs) You're just like, you know, I don't care. I don't care what she says. Um, But for me, the most technically, I think, gratifying is the shepherd's pie scene. Because it's a really, really complicated thing that really complicated tonally, really complicated structurally. Um, and obviously the way that it is shot as well is, you know, we, it's kind of divided into it's, it's white and red. And then, and so that felt, it was really, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where everything comes together, where everything, the performances and the writing and the, and the camera and every, everything all come together to make something feel as dreadful as that would feel. What Funny. about, yeah. Um, what is it about this film that you are asked about the most? It could be a scene, a moment, or something. And does that answer differ depending on which side of the pond you're on? I got a sense from talking to you a little earlier that people do react a bit differently in the US and the UK, right? I think in a room, people react really, differently. Yeah, yeah. Like the thing that I really love about this film, I wanted to make a film that was an experience that made you feel something, you know, that that was made to be, and it was the same with Promising a Woman. It's made to be watched in a dark room with a bunch of strangers. And what happens, you know, and I don't know if it happened tonight, but what happens in most, you know, in most screenings is that something will happen and some people will squeal and some people will say, oh no. And some people will be like, oh, and some people will be bored and some people will be like, this isn't even remotely shocking. I don't know what you guys do, (laughs) but this is just like Monday, you know, and everyone else is baffled by by everyone else's response. And so then the audience kind of turns on itself. So you find people shushing or saying like, shut the fuck up or whatever it is. And it's just like, that's what, movies should be i don't know when we you know when we got to a point where we had to sit in kind of like grave silence like i just think i i just i i kind of the movies that i love are the ones like cruel intention that were sexy and kind of fun and and made you feel stuff and you know i'm very much a gothic i'm a goth girl like i love the brontes (laughs) i love kate bush i love all of it you know billy eilish now all of these dark things you know my a-level my A-level art project was on sex, n apostrophe, death. You know, like, it's like a one, like there's one thing that I'm interested in. So it's, it's just that thing of, I like, I like things that are sort of overwrought, that feel emotionally operatic, that feel, that are funny in a really horrifying way. I think the the difference is, is that I suppose in England, maybe our comedy is just, I mean, it, it's changing so much now anyway, but like, but certainly the grotesque is something we're more comfortable with the sort of Dickens League of Gentlemen, just we, we've got a long kind of gothic kind of deep tradition. And I think that, that what sometimes happens with this film is I think it gets funnier as it goes along. <laughs> Because obviously the more horrific it becomes and the more depraved and the more violent, the more funny I personally think it is. But sometimes what can happen is people get more, people, it feels like it's getting more serious. (laughs) But you know, that's the fun thing about making something is after you make it, it's not really yours. And so it's just, yeah, I just, I really, I think that the one thing I did think was 
you get asked quite a lot, like, why this movie now? Because <laughs> um, I think we're expected for films to be political always now, to have context, you know, to, to say something, which is incredibly important, but not always, you know, not strictly necessary, I don't think, sometimes. But why this film now, I think... I think really it made sense to me afterwards that this was the film I finished writing during COVID because we couldn't touch each other because we were forbidden from doing anything but looking and we were looking at people's lives with an with a voyeurism and a new kind of desperation that we'd I don't know that we it was the intimacy with which we knew these people and the relationship with we, we had with them, this sort of strangers, was so intense. And it is a kind of love-hate. I mean, how many of us go on Instagram and look at people that we, like, disapprove of? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> disapprove of that huge house. I disapprove of her beautiful body. Disapprove of his choice of girlfriend. But you also, you know, the root of that disapproval is something else, isn't it? And so that's that's what the film is really is, you know, as as Def Leppard would say, when love and hate collide. <laughs> and so I hope that in that way, you know, like other gothic tales, it, it sort of, you know, hope will be kind of timeless. I have one minute of rapid fire, just random stuff for me. God, okay. And then we're going to close with some questions from the audience, and then you are free person. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so that, sounds like I wasn't before. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, here we go. Where do you write? In bed. On what do you write? Computer. Do you have to know the end from the beginning? I know the whole thing completely before I write. I know every word before I write it down. Because I write it for seven years in my head. So it doesn't ever, I don't ever write it down until it's finished. How far are you on the next one? I'm not far. No. You don't want to share anything about it, though? No. no. Nobody knows. My husband doesn't know. Really? Mm. Who's your dream collaborator? We can make it a two-parter. Living and dead. William Shakespeare. Bill? <laughs> Billy? Not for... Yeah. Not ju purely for the sex. Right. <laughs> Dream collaborator. Oh my God, there are so many. There are so many. I just like literally can't think of a single person because it's like everyone. I mean, David Lynch, but he can't collaborate. He's too much of a perfect genius. I just like to watch him. <laughs> and last one. Will you continue simultaneously acting and writing and directing or is there going to be a focus on one versus the other? I don't think so. I think, I mean, well, look, I mean, it. I don't know because you don't know because sometimes you have to play Mitch because you can't possibly <laughs> say no because it's the best thing ever. But I think for me, the joy that I feel making things, directing, writing, directing is like unparalleled. So as long as I'm allowed to do that, um, there are some who would be delighted if I did stop. But sadly, 
Um, not, I don't, I hope not for the foreseeable future. No, no, no. Well, we are going to go to the audience. Hey, I'm Zach Spitz. I actually graduated last year. I'm right here. Thanks so much for coming. My question for you is, how do you deal with writer's block and stress in general? How do I deal with stress in general? Badly. Badly. <laughs> I've been, I think, I haven't stopped since Killing Eve, which was 2018. So I haven't stopped. <laughs> so I think that I deal with stress by just piling more stress on <laughs> until eventually, I suppose, I just crack. I suppose I'll just crack at some point. <laughs> so how do I deal with stress? I don't. I'm just a nightmare. <laughs> Writer's block is a funny one because I don't, I think the thing, I think you just, for me, I only get writer's block if something's not right. If I don't, if I don't, my heart's not in it. I find that um, because I don't write, because I don't put pen to paper till right at the end, it really helps because I'm not staring at a blank page. I'm just thinking and thinking isn't, there's nothing threatening about thinking. You know, you can be wrong. You can have these conversations, you can have the scenes, you can have the characters a million times and you never feel like you're getting it wrong because they just evolve naturally. And so I think that really helps. Um, but really, whenever I feel like I don't want to write or think, then I just look at other people's stuff, but not just films, just go to just go and read. But I just usually it's just because I'm depleted because I've been thinking about myself and my own things for too long and need to go and like look at other people's stuff. Hi, I'm shaking. You are my biggest inspiration. Thank you so much for coming out to meet with us. But I just was wondering what your process is for writing dialogue between characters, because you always have a lot of really intense scenes with lots of sort of back and forth. Do you write them as like a collective whole where you plan out how the like the overall progress of the conversation will go? Or do you focus more on individual characters and then, you know, what they would say, if that makes sense? Sorry, I am... <laughs> of course, thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, it's a sort of, it's a difficult one because I'm sort of in a, like, I sort of feel a bit like, what's, what is, what is the film with Tom Cruise? guys help me out where minority report i was gonna be like where he does this <laughs> it's minority report so samantha morton in that film lies in a tub and her eyes glaze over and i feel a bit like that's my writing process in that i kind of live in a parallel universe and i and i go to par i i i usually and for my whole life i've usually had like four or five at any given time and one of them was saltburn and one of them was promising a woman and they were like worlds i would go and visit and so the characters in those scenes tend to be a kind of daydream a kind of fugue state you're both in it as an observer and a participant you're both characters you're sometimes it's it's like a, and I say this as somebody who really doesn't understand immersive theatre, it's like kind of immersive theatre inside your own head, I guess. And that, and, it, and it's just over years and years, some conversations don't happen, some rooms get like sealed off, some characters fall off a cliff. You know, it's, it's just, 
I just, I think the thing that really helps is being in the room, whatever that room is, you know, are there flowers? Do they smell? What are, what are you wearing? What's the fabric? How do you sit? You know, all of those things have so much bearing on the dialogue. Hi. So when writing a character like Ollie, sorry, um, what goes into the aspect of the character that's just inherently deceptive? Like writing a character who you think you understand for two hours and then at the very end realizing their true intentions. What do you think about when you're writing a character like that and to make the audience almost like feel partially safe with them until the very end? Well... I guess I think that we're all liars. So I'm very comfortable with liars and lying. Because if you're a storyteller, you're a liar. If you're a person, you're a liar. Uh, it's just to what degree we're comfortable admitting the lies we tell other people in ourselves. So I think firstly, I think I'm interested in that just in general. So I don't... Um, I think deception's kind of quite an interesting... I don't know, an interesting thing. Um... And and really, this is where the kind of genre comes in as a useful thing, because actually, we do know who Ollie is from the first moment. He tells us he's a liar. The film tells us he's a liar because he says, I wasn't in love with him. And then we show Felix dripping with sweat and looking like the most beautiful person you've ever seen in your life. So we know Ollie's a liar and we know, you know, and he says, I, you know, I, I protected him and we watch him watching him you know, from the shadows. And then we go to Oxford and, and almost immediately we see him standing outside Felix's window smoking, watching him have sex. So we do know. But because of the way that this story usually goes and because he's our protagonist and because of, you know, his effectiveness as an actor, but also because of the effectiveness of the sort of story that we're familiar with is that he's our underdog. So we believe that story, even though the film tells us over and over again that he's not and I think that's you know that's always that's a really important part of this is how we choose to engage with things too with people and with films I guess and so yeah I think for me it's always I, I, I kind of always hope something can kind of bear scrutiny a few times over because it's just how it's how you remember something differently um but no, but I mean, Ollie for me is, has always been the hero, you know, he's really just doing to his first love what I think a lot of us would do, um, metaphorically, <laughs> you know, I think. One of the best lines in the film is, we don't want your bloody American feelings. Um, and I think there's a really interesting thing you do that the characters don't want to feel. The Brits are often like, keep calm and carry on, you know, that kind of thing. And you've forced these characters into situations where they must feel and they must um, feel. And I want to know, um, what is your favorite part about putting them in such uncomfortable situations and seeing how they react? I don't think it is purely a British thing, actually. I think none of us are very good at feeling no matter how we, how good we get at articulating our feelings, I think the language has changed, but I don't think we're any closer to like understanding ourselves necessarily. Um, applying pressure is the best part of drama, I think, and comedy, pressure and release. And so it's sort of, you know, putting your foot on something till it squeaks, really. 
that's always the kind of thing that is fascinating and but to me that you know the the shepherd's pie scene that scene elspeth says something she says you know when when farley says um like w w what we just have to sit here and eat it and pretend like nothing's happened and she says but what else is there to do darling and i i agree what can you do what is there to be to be done that's the thing I love about Greek tragedy is often there's no answer. It's an unanswerable horror. So you might as well have lunch as anything else. You might as well fuck a grave as anything else because, <laughs> because what else do you do when you're confronted with the worst thing in the world? So I don't know. I think um, in many ways, I think the way that they act afterwards, people think it's callous. I don't know that it is. I think it's, you know, it's as good as it's good as any, isn't it, really? Hi, I'm Holiday. I'm a junior screenwriting major. Thanks for being here. This is my third time seeing this movie, and I love it. <laughs> um, and so I'm just really inspired by you. And I guess my question would be like, what advice would you give to a young female filmmaker who's trying to like make it in the industry? It's just so wonderful that there. Are I don't know that there are places like this, that there are so many. I don't know that I just, I feel so bogus giving anyone advice because I feel like you already know so much just by being here. But I think the thing that I wish I'd known is um, the failure is just like an inbuilt part of it and a necessary part of it. So particularly with the writing, I think I had 15 scripts at least before I even got really anywhere with any of them. Um, and s most of them weren't good, but some were. But it's just the, the kind of process. And so that kind of thing of, of not being disheartened. But, but from a kind of like, I don't know, from a creative standpoint, the thing that I really do think, especially as a woman, is you know best. People will want to tell you that you don't know. They'll want to be kind and well-meaning and paternalistic and helpful, but they don't know. They don't know. You know. And so trust trust yourself. When there, when there are things that you like profoundly don't agree with, even if everyone's telling you that you're wrong, if you believe it, then stick, stick with it. Huge thank you to Emerald for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.